We're continuing, we're continuing on our tough series, or a tough question series, and this week, the question that we're posing is, does Christianity promote violence? Now, increasingly, what we're seeing is, we're seeing a shift in the cultural view of Christianity. The world that is around us, how they view Christians, and how they view the, the good that Christianity does or something else. It used to be that Christianity was seen as old-fashioned or a little bit weird. And the, the truth is, if we grew up around some of the Christian subculture, we'd agree. There's some things that Christians have done in the past. You're like, that's, that's strange. I, I was going to bring up pictures of the like Christian church old school merch that they would do where they'd take a Coca-Cola logo and turn it into something for Jesus or whatever. And I remember certainly as a youth pastor, kids coming in with that. And you're like, I mean, wear whatever you want to wear. But there, there's some of that stuff that you're like, it's a little strange. And so it's understandable that in the past there have been certain things that people are like, ah, these Christians are a little old-fashioned, a little bit weird. But it's shifted. It shifted in our cultural moment from Christianity as simply old-fashioned to increasingly seeing Christianity as some, that's something that is dangerous and harmful. And so in an environment where increasingly Christianity is seen as dangerous or harmful, it forces us to grapple with, and certainly in the context of the church, what, what comes out of that. Because there are people that say things about what we would believe and, and, and push back on, and it would, it would sit in opposition to the way of the world. But it also raises new questions, and people may even say things like there has been so much violence done in the name of religion. And so it raises this question, does Christianity promote violence? Before we dig into it, I want to pray for us. God, I pray that you would be the one that speaks. God, fill my, fill my mouth with your words. You know what each of us are going through. You know that we walk in with all sorts of things, maybe heaviness, maybe celebration, maybe somewhere in between. And God, I believe wholeheartedly that you want to speak to each of us individually. And so I ask that you would quiet the noise, quiet all the, the stuff that is maybe distracting us, and instead, God, would you speak with your still, small voice? Would your whisper somehow cut through the noise? God, as we wrestle with, grapple with questions that are difficult and tough, we also know and believe that you are not afraid and you are in control. And so we need you, we trust you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, does Christianity promote violence? One of the challenges, even when we're saying things like, does Christianity do anything, is we're talking about a movement of billions of people that has spanned thousands of years. The reality is that when we say Christians, there's not just one group of us. And it can be confusing for people in the world. They're like, how come there's so many denominations and groups and differences? And, and for us to recognize that Christians are not monolithic, one little group. And then there's also people on the other side that would say we're Christians, and as Christians, we'd be going, mm -mm. like, you don't get that label. And so it's important for us to understand that when we say a question that is as general as does Christianity promote violence, that, that we understand that there is so much variation in certainly the history of the church and in how the church functions. 
And so I think it's valuable rather than starting at that place to actually back up and go, let's look at the messenger who shared the message. His name is Jesus. Let's look at the message that he represented and he shared, and then let's consider his life. In Matthew 5, verse 38 to 39, Jesus is speaking and he says this. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now notice how he's framing this up. He's saying, you've heard the law. The law, this is not just ideas or, this is the law. This is how they operated. You're breaking the law. You're, you're doing the law if punishment matches the injury, if it's an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It's important for us to understand the context and culture that Jesus is in. In Jesus's culture, it is acceptable to respond to someone in kind. They do something to us, we get to do something back, which for all the conversations that we have about how much we've changed and progressed and, and, and grown, it's not any different today. We still have this part in us that goes, if someone does me wrong, I'm going to get them back. I'm going to do it back. I mean, John Wick has made billions of dollars over four movies of proving that we'll all fill the theaters to watch some guy get revenge. But culturally, there's this part of going, if someone did something to me, I want to do something back. If someone wrongs me, I want to get them back. Like, if someone slaps me, what's my instinct? My instinct is to go, I think I could go harder. I think I could respond even harder. And listen, I know there's this part of like, we're Christians and we don't say stuff like that, but there's this part in the back of our head that's like, if I could... I'd really, and listen, if you're not sure if that's ingrained in humanity, spend some time with kids. Because what happens with kids is they're socializing, and this is our kids, they're normal human beings, and they, they're like having fun, and we go, okay, we got about a 15-minute window where there's no conflict until one pushes the other, maybe accidentally, so they say, maybe not. And what does the other one do? The other one gets as much effort as they can and pushes, like, so the one push a little, the other one's flying through the grass, like, because there's something in humanity. Our instinct is to go, I need to get it back. I need to make this right by getting my own warped view of justice. Because at some level, it's understanding that as human beings, we have this distorted view of revenge and this warped view of justice. It's helpful for us to just acknowledge that for most of us, that's a default setting. And what Jesus is offering is something different. See, this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is the way of the world, but Jesus does something different. He represents an alternative. Jesus says, I say, but I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also, Jesus teaches his followers to operate differently from the world. The invitation is not to just settle into what is natural and common, but instead to embrace a different way of life. 
Now, I want you just for a moment to imagine this because I think, again, as Christians, we're like, well, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what we should do. Which is all wonderful, but what about when someone does slap you in the face? Like, think about it in your own just day-to-day life. You're minding your own business and someone just smacks you across the face. And you're going, okay, well, Jesus said what I'm supposed to do is I'm supposed to turn and offer the other cheek. Do you do that? Like, so I'm ready. You got this one. Do you want this one too? No, there's a degree that you're like, I, I know that I should, but it confronts some stuff. There's a degree that the way that Jesus is operating is, is, really, is really, I think, at times difficult for, our, to, for us to wrap our brains around. And I think even on a less than literal level, to think about in our own life, if someone does something wrong to us, is our instinct to operate like Jesus? Or is our instinct to go, I need to get revenge? Sometimes people wrong us and our responsibility is not to try to wrong them back. I would say most of the time that when someone wrongs us, the invitation Jesus is giving us is not, hey, you got this. Time to plot and scheme and get them back. But is it a different way of life? And Jesus is speaking about living like this. And I think the challenge for us sometimes is that we can isolate the the words of Jesus from the ways of Jesus. And so we see the words of Jesus where he's talking about, about treating people differently. And then we can go, okay, wait, practically though, like do, can I do that in my life? And we find in him, we find no separation between what he says and what he does. In fact, we find it, we find it can be in completely congruent, in alignment. Jesus goes to the cross and even on his, at his death on the cross, we see this different way of operating. Jesus completely subverts the use of power and how we view justice. And so Jesus had demonstrated power to raise people from the dead and yet willingly stayed on the cross. He could have just removed himself and go, you know what, I don't want to do it like this, but he didn't. And then, to add insult to injury, this whole process is such a mess. He's face-to-face on a cross with the very people that have not just, not just conceptually done violence to him through words, have literally beaten him almost, within, almost to death, have mocked him. He, he's been in this farce of a trial, so condemned to death, listening to people lie about him. No illusion of, of justice. Now, we can look at Jesus and go, yeah, of course, all of that. But I want you just to imagine what that is like. Jesus, fully, fully God and also fully human. With every single thing that is pointing to, this is so unjust and wrong. And how does he respond In Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I want us, even just for a moment, to consider in our own life, is that our posture? Like someone cuts us off in traffic? Do we give them the the single finger salute as as they're coming by? Or do we yell out, Father, forgive them, Right? Someone does something wrong to us. Do we go, do we smile and look at them and just go, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
Do, do we respond with graciousness? Because I think, I think some of us would go, well, like 30 to 34% of the time, unless I'm tired, hungry, annoyed, distracted. And then we find this part in us that responds that you go, you know, doesn't look as much like Jesus. It's so important for us to understand this is how Jesus responded and this is our invitation. And it reminds us of something that is so unbelievably essential for our faith that our beliefs must match our actions. It's not enough for us just to know what the right thing to do is, what we need to do, and Kevin talked about, we need to train ourselves so that the right thing is our natural response. We have to actually change and be willing to be conformed and surrender, and we can't just look at it and go, it's enough just to know. The challenge for us as Christians is that for too long, it's just been enough to go, well, I know all the right answers, and you go, yeah, but what we find in Jesus is integration. We don't just know the answers. He doesn't just say the right thing. He lives it out. And so it's a challenge for us in our own life. Jesus did not just talk about loving your enemies. Sounds lovely. We need to love our enemies until you have one. And then you're like, not them. I refuse to love them. I know I should. But have you seen what they've done? And Jesus goes, hey, don't you see how I lived? Like I think, can, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna guess that none of us have been wrong to the point of what Jesus experienced. I'm gonna guess that none of us have experienced what Jesus did and so he proves to us that there is actually an opportunity to live what we say is true. And so Jesus represents a different way of responding to injustice and revenge and violence. But beyond Jesus in Romans 12 Verse 17 to 18, we see this. It says, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. So if we're asking the question, and I, I picked a few verses, but if we're asking the question, do we see a consistent, a pattern of consistent violence in the name of Jesus or his message through the New Testament? If we're asking that question just on a high level, do we see a pattern of committing violence in the name of Jesus as being acceptable and okay and good through, through the New Testament? No. We, we can't find that. Instead, we find things that challenge us. But it does raise the further question. We do have some places in history that people can point to where there are things that happen that seem to be incongruent with what we say we believe. Increasingly, we see this, this tendency in culture to struggle with hypocrisy. And so there can be moments, both inside of the church and outside of the church, that we go, what what we say and what we do, they don't seem to be lining up. And I wanna look at two, and I, I don't have a ton of time to go into tons of detail, but I wanna look at two of those places that people often point to. One is the Crusades, and the other is Nazi Germany. Just, just two, two significant marks that you go, yeah, what do I do with that? First, let me talk about the Crusades. There are people that look back to the Crusades as evidence of the damage that Christianity can do. This is a movement of people that go, yeah, 
look at what happened in the Crusades. See, Christianity is harmful and, and oppressive and wrong and does damage and violence. Here's the problem for us. The problem is that often we view history not through the lens of scholarship and actual history. We often learn history through movies and TV shows. And so we have this caricatured version of the Crusades. And we're like, well, I picture this and picture that. And I think if we're just being intellectually honest, we'd go, yeah, I didn't read that anywhere in a book. I just, that's what I was told. Well, that's what I saw, and it seemed to make a lot of sense. Historian Thomas Madden called the Crusades one of the most misunderstood events in Western history. Now, again, I would say most of us go, I didn't know that. And he, he's, he's talking about the, the, the reason that the conflict happens, because at the center of it is the idea that these Christians went in with force and they attacked peaceful Muslims or people of other faiths and they forced whole areas to become Christians by force. Now, if you think that's what it is, if you're going, okay, a bunch of Christians that go and just decimate whole areas and go, you better love Jesus or else we'll kill you. You're like, wow, that's dark. And if that's the reality, you struggle with that. What does that look like? The truth is actually closer to the, the fact that, that at that time it was a response to what was already happening. And so there were whole Muslim communities that by force were taking over cities and are occupying places and attacking. And so the Crusades was in many ways an, an opposition or response to conflict that was already happening. And so it's helpful for us to understand who was, who was actually driving the initial violence. To go, it wasn't Christians sitting there going, what should we do today? Now I'm not suggesting how they responded was good, but I think it's important for us and helpful for us to understand the context of the environment. It was a counter-offensive intended to take back land. So did Christianity cause the Crusades? Short answer, no. But the Crusades also offer us a really interesting look into the challenges of being people that do violence and also proclaim to follow Jesus. It creates this tension where we're going, wait, okay, maybe the reason it happened makes more sense, but how could they do what they did? How could they say we're following the way of Jesus who models something different and then live in opposition? There are stories, I was trying to see if I could find historical accounts, and I don't know whether they're anecdotal or whatever, but there are stories of knights in the Crusades being baptized, with all their armor on. And they used to, they would be baptized, but there is there are stories of them being baptized with every part of them except for their hand and their sword out of the water. And so it's this really interesting picture where it's like, God be with us except I know I'm about to do something that's unholy. It's, it's interesting when you think, it's like this spot, and I think there's parts of us as Christians that we go, God, I'll give you every single bit of me, but... This is off limits. And so again, you find this group of people that regardless of why it happened, you see this disconnect between what they say they believe and how they live. There's this discordance between following the way of Jesus and the way of the world. Now, it's helpful for us to understand that 
but it also does cause us to reflect and it causes us to, to, to still think, that still seems awful. All of that seems wrong. How can you follow Jesus and still take lives so carelessly? And so the, the one area is the crusades that people would point to as evidence of the impact, negative impact of Christianity. And the other is, what about Nazis in Germany? What do we do with what happened in Germany and all the atrocities that happened through Hitler? Hitler weaponized religion to do significant damage. But the challenge is you can't in any good conscience call what he did Christianity. And actually his, his party, his movement, the National Socialistic Movement, they actually said up front, our, our aim is to destroy Christianity. In their literature saying, we're gonna take this out. But they did something insidious. And if, you, if you've been around for a previous week, you'll hear that there are patterns of this happening in history and it almost always leads to horrific atrocities. And what they did, rather than rejecting Christianity, they tried to make it in their own image. And they just started removing things. Because I want you to just imagine for a moment, you have this guy that's, that's, that's saying, yeah, I'm gonna fix everything, and actually the real problem are the Jewish people. And then you have this book. And if you haven't read the Bible, the whole beginning part is about the Jewish people, God's chosen people. So what do they do? They're like, well, remove most of that, get rid of all of this, get rid of anything that maybe could be misconstrued as truth, and let's distort it and create our own version. They removed giant amounts of the Bible to fit their ends. And then Hitler took it even further and he tried to place himself in the position of Jesus. I was reading a book this past week where he was talking about a version of the Lord's Prayer that Hitler had people reciting. And it made me sick. Praying to Hitler as if he has all of the answers and he can direct you and like putting him in this deity position. And so in this, they, they, the, the Nazi party tried to create this own separate version of Christianity. They called it positive Christianity, which is such a disgusting, even perversion of language. You go positive Christianity, it leads to six million people who are innocent losing their lives. And we're somehow calling that Christianity. All of it is so horrific, but all of it could not be further from the way of Jesus. And through all of this, Hitler did substantial damage and he did violence to people. And he took people's lives. And unfortunately, in the midst of it in Germany, some pastors and some Christians sat idly by, whether by force or belief or distortion. They did not actively respond to what Hitler did in reaction of this is wrong, but instead went along with it. But it's important for us to know that was not everyone. That though there were Christians that, that did awful things and let awful things happen, there were also other Christians that were unwilling to sit idly by. One of those Christians, Christians who stood against Hitler, his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you've ever read anything by Bonhoeffer, he was brilliant. He, he was a brilliant theologian and, and wasn't just someone that had to understand theology in the context of academia, but was living it out. 
And there was this story of, of Bonhoeffer. And Bonhoeffer came from this wealthy family. And increasingly, and I think it's similar to what my sense is for us as a church, increasingly he was going, I want more and I want to really follow Jesus. I want my life to be marked by him. And, and increasingly his former community was like, hey man, chill out. Like you're getting a little too extreme. This whole Jesus thing, that's fine. Do that on Sunday and leave it there. And increasingly he was going, no, I need to make this part of all of my life and live differently. And so one of his friends who was this rich friend who, who thought, you know what, I'll go, I'll talk to Dietrich and I'll convince him to just cool it. And Dietrich at that point had this school that was in secret that was for pastors where he was training pastors to, to, to resist what Nazi Germany was, what was happening with Nazi Germany and Hitler. So he was training this small group of people. His friend comes by and he's like, hey, listen, man, we need to chill out on this. And Dietrich goes, come with me. And they take a, a boat and then they end up on this hill and they get to the crest and they look out and there's one of Hitler's youth camps filled with kids and teenagers that Hitler is indoctrinating into this way of Nazism. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer points to what he is doing and what he is building and he says, this must be stronger than that. And I think about what that looks like for us today, especially for parents. What we are building as a community must be stronger than all the other things that are representing a distortion of life as it should be. That this must be stronger than that. This is why when we think about our next generation, we don't just want to entertain them or off-put. As parents, we are responsible our kids are being shaped and formed by voices that do not look like Jesus. And this must be stronger than that. Our responsibility as a community is to look at all the ways that things get distorted and go, no, there's a better way of life. We are responsible to shape and train and apprentice those that are coming after us. This must be stronger than that. And so in the face of looking at those two places, the Crusades and Nazi Germany, we can find all of these areas where you go, okay, there's, there's so much complexity and there's things that were wrong and things that, that also people that stood up, but, but it still can be something that people around us that do not follow Jesus can go, you know what, whatever, all the gray stuff, maybe just be better to just remove religion completely, remove Christianity completely. Like maybe that's the solution. I mean, you can be spiritual, spiritual or whatever, but nothing that actually holds any kind of conviction. If we removed religion, would things be better? If you're familiar, there's someone named Karl Marx who created a movement of Marxism, and he, he, his goal, one of his goals was to remove religion completely. And R.J. Rummel says this, of all religions, secular and otherwise, that of Marxism has been by far the bloodiest. Marxism has meant bloody terrorism, deadly purges, lethal prison camps, and murderous forced labor, fatal deportations, man-made famines, extrajudicial executions, and fraudulent show trials, outright mass murder, and genocide. And so you have an environment where they remove religion. And we've seen this in history through communism. 60 million people were killed 
in the Soviet Union in the name of communism, 35 million killed in China. And so we can look at the world and go, you know what, maybe it would just be better to not have Christianity, to not have religion. Maybe it'd be better if we just lived uh, just as if God was not real. And what we find is that the world consistently has proved over time that it is better when Christianity was involved, is involved. There is substantial and repeated evidence that, that Christianity had a significant impact. And I've said it in previous weeks, but it's important that you know that most of the hospitals we have, most of the universities, most of the programs that are meant to serve people happen because of Christians who had significant impacts. Now, were there Christians throughout history that do not represent the way of Jesus? Well, absolutely. But there is also tremendous historical evidence of the, of the good that Christianity has done. But what happened through Nazi Germany especially, it offers us insight into a powerful truth. In Nazism and in other movements, we find the danger of perverting the message of Jesus and trying to make it in our own image. We find the danger of trying to make Jesus fit our ideological category and going, yep, Jesus agrees with me in this and everything that he doesn't, we go, I'll just, I'll just remove that and pretend that doesn't exist. Jesus does not fit neatly into the nice little human categories that we make. And this is not a problem for just the past, it is a continued problem for today. Our tendency to try to reduce Jesus and make him fit into some sort of ideology or fit into some sort of political party or some system for, to look like, like something that we want him to make, making Jesus look like we wish he did instead of allowing Jesus to be countercultural like he is, standing in contrast to the way of the world, opposing so many of the things that we see around us. And when we investigate the words of Jesus and the way of Jesus, we realize that so often he confounded people that tried to put him in neat little categories. That you go, well, he has this, and then he also has these other parts. Some of us, we think about nice guy Jesus. We're like, Jesus was just so, he's just nice and just really relaxed. He never really did it. He just loved people. And then you read, and he's flipping tables and telling people to go and sin no more. And you're like, wait a second. It seems like maybe this caricature of Jesus is not actually accurately represented. See, it's important for us to understand Jesus is not passive. And I think sometimes that we can think, if we can just be nice, kind, happy Christians, then we'll be good. And we think that that means that we just need to be passive and go, you know, whatever it all, you know, I just don't want, I don't want to say anything or offend anyone or whatever. And I'm not asking us to be people that are offensive for no reason. But I am asking us to consider Jesus, who was willing to do things and stand up against things that were wrong and was, and was willing to pay the price for that for us, who was willing to actually not just sit passively, but ignite a whole movement of people in his name who brought the good news and the kingdom of God, this way of Jesus that looks different from the way of the world. Jesus offers us something completely different. And what he offers, especially for those of us that follow the way of Jesus, is a life of consistent and complete surrender to his way and his will and his words. 
to consistently go, God, I want everything that you have for me, and I'm willing to put to death all the things that I have been shaped by that are not of you. He offers us a completely different way of life, which includes putting to death our desire for human revenge and our own warped view of justice. See, it's important that you understand if you follow the way of Jesus, we come from a long line of people who loved their enemies and willingly gave up their lives for their faith. In the face of a culture where Christianity is seen as harmful, how do we respond? Is it with force or is it with something else? Let me just remind you and give you context. Historically, Christianity has always thrived in environments where it is countercultural, where it is different than the world around it, when it's not in line with the culture, but actually it stands in opposition. If you look at the early church, following Jesus could actually mean imprisonment or sometimes death. But the Christians at the time held their faith at the center. This was so essential to who they were. And rather than bemoaning the difficulty, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian, it's so difficult and uncomfortable and costly, instead, every single time that they faced jail or persecution, you know what they did? Shared Jesus with the jailer, with the persecutor, with the person who was, who was trying to take their life or, or keep them chained up. They're like, let me tell you about Jesus. The people that were trying to say, or that, were, that very much looked like their enemies, the early church saw them as opportunities to love their enemies, not just say it as a good idea that maybe they should do at some point. It was ingrained in their life. And as a result of this, Christianity changed the world all over. It, it drastically changed. Even when you look at the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire in, in a short period of time went where, rent from where Christianity was a minority that was hidden and under the ground, underground to having so much influence and power that the Roman Empire is like, hey, we need to get rid of the ban on Christianity because there's way more of them than us. And again, how did they do it? They did it by being unwilling to just talk about ideas and, and think the right things, but instead lived in a way that actually represented the way of Jesus, where their beliefs matched their actions, where their beliefs were made true, proved to true by difficulty, because I think for some of us, we're like, yeah, that all makes sense until it's difficult. And then we're like, oh, it'd be easier to do the wrong thing. Yeah, that's where we actually identify, is this what I believe? Is it actually true? When I'm invited to not respond to someone who smacks me in the face by smacking them back, when I'm faced with my enemy and I'm invited to love them, do my beliefs actually show up in my actions? And generally, when we see Christianity mixed with any ideology, we see damage done. Jesus stands on his own as a different way, and it's important for us to understand across all sorts of categories, generally, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. He'll offend every single person that wants anything other than the way of Jesus, and he'll point out areas where you go, that's discordant, that does not fit, and if we'll allow him, we'll shape us and conform us into his Way. The invitation for us is to live our lives differently. There's a passage in Matthew 22 where Jesus is standing in front of religious leaders, and I shared it, I think, in a previous week, but they're trying to trap 
him up. And Jesus is summarizing all that is so important. So one of them says, an expert in religious law tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. This passage covers so many of the different topics that we have talked about, but especially if we look at this, loving our neighbors as ourselves helps us to frame up our view of violence to others. It helps us to consider how do we respond when we are wrong. And regardless of the way this plays out, because there are church communities, there are people like the Anabaptists that go, we, we, we are so willing to, to embrace being pacifists that we don't even allow people in leadership that are police officers or serve in the military. There's groups like that, or there's groups that are somewhere in the middle. And regardless of how that actually plays out for us individually, I think that we, we cannot become numb to the reality that all human life is of significant dignity. And we cannot come to it from this place where we become numb to, to every facet of humanity that devalues human life and just go, yeah, whatever. It doesn't really affect me. I think as Christians, we need to constantly be thinking, is this in line with the way of Jesus? And it's important that it's not enough to say it. We have to live it. We must in our actions demonstrate our beliefs. John Piper had this quote that has just sat with me and it and frankly wrecked me. And it says this, the world does not need cool Christians who are culturally saturated. It needs exiles with the scent of heaven and the aroma of Christ. The world does not need cool Christians who are culturally saturated. It needs exiles with the scent of heaven and the aroma of Christ. And so we find in history this tendency, and we have to fight it in 2023, to try to make Jesus into our own image. We must in community and through generations of the church, through orthodoxy, to actually embrace and to fight against this tendency to try to make Jesus in our image and instead embrace the good news that has changed the world for thousands of years. We look back at the early church and go, God, do it again. We don't, we don't allow ourselves to try to settle for something different thinking we know better. We want what was because what was changed the world. We must not try to make Jesus conform to the world but instead conform ourselves to him. And so maybe today is the day that you surrender again to him. Give your life again for the first time or the first time in a long time. Maybe you go, I need to, I need to actually live, not just as someone who at one point maybe prayed a prayer or said I was a Christian, but in, in following the way of Jesus, living my life in surrender to him, laying down everything and saying, I want your way of life. And if that's you, let us know. Fill out a connect card. Talk to one of us. But I think for all of us, it's an opportunity to do a heart check. 1 John 3, verse 15 says, anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life in them. Now, we can look at, we can look at the history and see atrocities where Christians were involved or not as involved as they should be and sit idly by and feel some sort of way. But the way more difficult thing is for us to actually start at home 
and look inward and go, am I capable of that? Is there parts of me that are out of, that are out of alignment? Is there hate in my heart? Let me just be clear and go, the, the way that the world would define hate increasingly does not line up with the way that Bible, the Bible would, create, would, would define hate. I'm not talking about being, being, seeing what Jesus says is sin and going like, eh, whatever, I just don't want to hate people. That's not what I'm talking about. I, I, I think we need to actually look at what Jesus is saying and the standard that, that he holds us to. And, and frankly, at times, I think, be less concerned about telling other people about that and actually doing it ourselves. But I go, we need to live as if what Jesus said is actually true, and there are things that he calls us to or out of that we take seriously. I'm talking about hate in its classical sense. I'm talking about wishing harm on another. I'm talking about when we, when we sit there and look at someone and go, I hope they get what they deserve. Because here's the central message of Christianity. We don't get what we deserve. Because we deserve death. Like we look at our own life and go, I'm a mess. And Jesus goes, perfect, come to me. Let me give you what you do not deserve. And he lives a life we could never live. And he restores us to God the Father in a way we could never do. So we look at others and instead of going, I hope they die and suffer, we look and go, they need Jesus. The invitation for us is to live differently. But I think it's so easy for us to become callous and go, well, you know, I don't really want them dead. I just want them harmed. And go, at some level we have to identify that, that what we've done is we've made an idol of just understanding in our head or even our hands and forgot that Jesus actually does care about our heart. And so if we say, I don't hate people, but kinda I do, then John's saying that makes us a murderer. And so we don't take that lightly. We take that seriously. If there's stuff in our life where we are hating people and treating people and wanting damage for them, instead of, instead of actually seeing them for who they are, we need to deal with that. Now, what I'm not recommending is that you go up to the person that maybe in your head you've imagined horrible things happening to, and you say it to them. Hey, so listen, I've hated you for a long time. And I've just, I've wished you got hit by a car or run over by a train or just, you know, got leprosy. I've just, I've thought about all sorts of things, but I just want to just say I'm sorry. I'll try not to do it anymore. Okay, you, here's what happens. You feel marginally better and that person's like, what? <laughs> like, I am not suggesting that because I do not believe that's particularly helpful. What am I suggesting? I'm suggesting that every single person that you treat like that, that you see in a way that is not how God sees them, that you begin to pray for that person earnestly and, and pray that you might just, and I think God will answer the prayer that God will break your heart for that person. And I get, we might, and you can be honest and go, I have like, 6% earnest in me. Like, I'm like, God, do whatever with that person. <laughs> Start there. But over time, I just wonder if in our culture, if we would represent Jesus better if we actually took what he said seriously in our lives. If on a daily basis we went, you know, Jesus talks about loving our enemies. I should probably do that. 
Because we can look at history and we can see violence that is committed by people and some by who said they were Christians. But it's important for us to understand that none of that stuff happens just in a moment and then it's just, it, it happens because over time there's a hardening of hearts, there's a perversion of the true message of Jesus, and there's an unwillingness to actually be confronted by what he says. See, the truth is that when I read the Bible every single time, I'm like, Phew. like it, it, I allow it to actually confront and speak to some areas in my life that I go, I have not arrived I am in process, and I'm unwilling to get to the place where I go, I'm pretty good now. Because the more that I have, the more that I'm like, I need you, I see what you've done for me. And honestly, the more that I recognize how much I need Jesus, the more that I'm compassionate and feel compassion for those around me. My neighbors, my friends, my family. There are hundreds of thousands of people that don't yet know Jesus, and I am convinced that some of the people that we perceive to be enemies in our life, God would like to use us to see them find life in him. And we cannot just say, you know what, at some point some Christians did bad things. We go, I, what am I responsible for? I am responsible for living my life where my beliefs match my actions. I can't just say something. Yeah, love our enemies and not do it. I can't just go, well, he says to, to turn the other cheek. And you go, yeah, great idea. We'll teach that to our kids, but I won't do that. Our, our, our life much, must accurately represent our beliefs. First John says in 1 John 3.18, Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. We have a, a significant opportunity in 2023. Because the world has presented love as one thing. Just let everyone do whatever they want to do. That's loving. And we have the highest rates of anxiety, the highest rates of depression, the lowest rates of satisfaction in history. And so there's a degree that all around right now, I'm seeing it. I just had a conversation with a professor at Western who lives near me. He's going, it's not working. And so this idea, distorting love, distorting tolerance, distorting culture, and going, you know what, that's going to be the solution, and it's not working, and people know it. And what is the way of Jesus? It is sacrificial love, love that lays down our own life, love that invites. It's grace and truth. We speak truth, but we also live in an understanding of grace that we experience, that we know what God has done for us. And so my challenge beyond just understanding, okay, there's some nuance to what's happened historically, is for us to live our lives in ways that are different. Let this be an inflection point for us as a church. Let's not just understand the right thing, but actually do it.